Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Well, take uh, your Bible and let's look at Psalm 11. Let's look at Psalm 11. I've entitled the, uh, the, the message, When Everything Seems to Come Apart. I was thinking about uh, the national election for weeks and, and for months, like many of you have, and, uh, and particularly as it moved closer and then you saw the polls and you wonder, are they accurate? You know, um, insofar as the direction as a country, I realize, and I'll say it over and over again, my hope is never in Washington, D.C. I don't believe in any political messiah or, or messianic-type individual. I know there will be a, a person that will arise in the last days who will come out of nowhere, and, and he'll be a messianic to some. He's, uh, biblically, he's the Antichrist. He'll represent himself as peace and safety and the great uh, problem solver of the nations. You can almost sense that as we move toward the final days of the final days. Uh, the world looking from, for some sort of national, international healer of some sort that can bring the nations together and, and provide solutions that seem to be beyond us. And there are many, aren't there? Wars and war, rumors of wars, economic collapse, health issues, horrible uh, carnage, uh, death on the African continent. Uh, everywhere you look, the nations seem to be raging and not far from a rage. Uh, it, it's, 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 uh, it's surging about. You can feel it and sense it. Uh, and they're looking for and culminating in the day of this... Uh, satanic counterpart to the Messiah, Antichrist. Well, as I was thinking about the election, and uh, uh, I, as you know, I, I don't take a stand from the pulpit and say, vote for this guy or vote for that guy. My, my impression, really, is that we had very weak candidates for office this year. Very weak. And I looked at it and I said, is that the best we can have? We have 300 million people here. Is that the best? You, you, you know, I mean, the one takes a strong stand for pro-life, and I was thankful for that. And to me, that always is the major issue. I could, you know, I, who wants their taxes raised, right? But if you take a strong stand on the sacredness of life and you say, I'm going to raise your taxes, and the other person or people say, well, you know, we're for abortion and the right to choose, and we won't raise every day of the week. I'll vote for the guy who'll raise my taxes. Because what's that in comparison to, the, to, to life? Life. I mean, they're not, it's not like three out of four, okay? <clears throat> he's against, he's against um, life. He allows abortion, but he's for the economy, and he wants better schools, or she wants this. Well, three out of four... But believe me, they're not all the same value or the same weight. And the mush that's between people's ears and eyes and hearts as they think about such things, it's discouraging, can be, politically. God has ordained government. 
to be a, a, uh, a, his agent, to be a what? Promoter of the common good the, 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 and, and to be a terror to evildoers and to defend the weak and to help the maim. And, the, and, uh, and that's God's plan and program with human government. It's not the church. It's not the family. They're two, those are two other institutions of God. And they're not to be mixed together either. The church and the, the state are not to be confused. Terrible thing when the state thinks somehow they ought to appoint the pastors or pay for the minister's payroll, which happens in most countries, you know. And bit by bit, the churches are empty because they have left the scriptures, but the clergy, like the Church of England, they still get a, a tremendous payroll and all that, but nobody's in the church because they've lost their Bible. The German church is like that. The Scandinavian church is like that. Other churches are like that, you see. The church and the state are two different entities. They each have their place. And the family is altogether a different one, and not to be confused. The state does not own the children. You'll see that encroachment. You'll see it from the West Coast moving this way. In areas of education, you know, we'll take the parents out of the loop. The parents in Massachusetts can't even question what is being taught in the curriculum uh, up there in the public schools. Sis, uh, uh, where are where Sis? You, you know that through Bob and Wanda's kids there. There was a, uh, they went in and questioned, and uh, they were almost uh, slapped with a lawsuit. They took their kids out. And then we feel the encroachment, the caving uh, in our day, and we wonder, well, what's the answer to that? What is it? Well, when everything seems to come apart, I thought we'd go back to this text, and I hope you never forget these seven verses, because David deals with this. The results of the election this past Tuesday seem to discourage many, many people. We had hoped for better, a better outcome. There were some that uh, stood firm on some good issues that were elected, but a lot seemed not to. Many seem to be uh, elected who have a very low view of life, making it more dangerous in fact, some have said the most dangerous place in America is, uh, is a baby in a mother's womb. How terrible is that? It should be the most sacred, most protected place for the most uh, weakest form of human life, and yet it's not. I say to you, all issues are not the same importance. Taxes, war, health insurance, jobs, financial stability, these things are important in their place. Of course they are. I'm not saying they're not, but they're not of the same import as the value of human life. It's sacred. It's made in God's image, and therefore it ought to be protected at all costs. At such times as now, it seems like the foundations are crumbling. They're eroding. Things that uh, we thought were firm and steadfast seem to be eroding against the, uh, the spirit of our day a day in which it's uh, attempting to throw off most things of yesteryear, things that we held sacred and true. And now they're exposed to the rough winds of the current prevailing attitudes of people. Well, what are God's people to do? What should we do? What should we do? What do we do? We just stay in a holy huddle and gather here and Maybe you'll form a commune, right? They've done that in days gone by. It's dangerous out there, you know. 
danger in them, thar hills. Let's just stay together. It feels good, doesn't it? Be together. Let's stay in a holy huddle. Maybe we'll do that. Some do that. Well, we, we, why not do that? It's good to come together. We need each other. We draw strength from each other. Should we just quit? That's it. I'm done. You know, so that's it. I'll never get involved again. I'll never give another check to anybody. I'll never, any of that. Insofar as uh, our country and politics and trying to be salt and light, I'll quit. Well, some think that. Should we hide? Some say, well, let's just run away, right? How do we respond to, uh, to uh, what we sense is, was a caving of, of things that were established, at least in the political scene and things in the culture? What do we do? Well, David helps us. He wrote this psalm, and uh, he wrote it a long time ago. It's a song of uh, confident trust. And don't we need that? It's an expression of his trust in the Lord amid a very trying time. He unpacks his thoughts while facing in his own life a very bad circumstance. He even had good friends urge him, get out of town, get out of Dodge. <laughs> bad. Get out of town. Get out of here fast. Save yourself. Well, Psalm 11, I would understand it in this little psalm, is faith's response to fear's counsel in the midst of utter, seemingly despair. Now, just a word on the setting. We really don't know the setting, and that I like that because it makes it more universal in application. It speaks to us here and now in our day and the week that we've just come through, the election process that wearied all of us out. Some would suppose maybe this was uh, written following David's many uh, leaving town, leaving Dodge, as it were, when Saul was chasing him. Remember that? Saul, uh, Jonathan warned him, my father's a lunatic. Get out of Jerusalem. He's going to kill you. And David was on the lam for many, many years. He was a cave dweller. I'm reminded, whenever conditions are so bad, men and women will crawl into caves and live. There's never been such thing as ape men. No way. Cavemen, yes. When conditions are bad, men crawl into caves. And they're going to do that in the tribulation period. And when the rocks are falling, they're going to hide in the cave. Read the Olivet Discourse, and you'll see it again. It couldn't have been that time, though. It could not be the setting because David doesn't flee in Psalm 11 like he did flee with Saul. Well, some would suggest, well, maybe it's that terrible time when Absalom rebelled. His oldest son uh, did the terrible thing, and David had to leave town in a hurry. Remember that? But it couldn't be that either, right? Because David is expressing calm, confident trust in the Lord in the midst, in the face of a terrible circumstance. And he didn't move. And so it can't be that. It's universal, and so it speaks to us here and now. In a word, there are three directions that you and I must look when everything seems to be coming apart at the seam, when the foundations are being destroyed or so with we would think that's what's happening. Three directions. In a word, we must remember that our God is still on the throne. He's not on vacation. He's not left us. He's not unaware. We're going to see that. He still sits on the throne. Let God be true and every man a liar. And Maybe just this week, maybe today, you just need this 
biblical vitamin shot of biblical truth to encourage you. Not to pack it in, nor to hide, nor to lead, nor to quit in serving Christ, but to keep on with joy in your heart serving Him, knowing that even in hard times, God has great purposes. Well, God's still on the throne, and history is still moving toward the day in which Christ will return. Three directions, and here they are in a word, like the old preacher, say what you're going to say, say it, and then remind people what you said. He says, first of all, he's going to say, look out, you really do have enemies. You really do have enemies and people that will harm you. And then he says, don't stop there, look up. Look up. Your redemption draws nigh. Look up, God is on the throne. And then finally, look ahead and see the end of the game. Not like that terrible Penn State ending yesterday. Oh, that put me in a bad mood for about two hours. Stuart, LSU even lost. Now, what a day. I thought we were in the tribulation all the way around. Man, the ending. The, the ending of this. Praise the Lord. Wait until we see what it is. So three directions we must look when everything seems to be coming apart. Verses 1 to 3, look at this. We, like David, need to look out and see that, in fact, we have enemies. Let's read our text. David writes, verse 1, In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, Flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the string to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Let's stop there. We, like David, need, need desperately need not to be naive. You know, there are people that walk about with rose-colored glasses on. Sometimes they fill university chairs and seats and other places and media. And, and they, they look at the world as just, isn't just a wonderful place, just so wonderful. Just one, and I'm optimistic. I'm an up guy most of the time, except yesterday when the game, you know. Usually I am. But I've got to tell you, you have enemies, and I have enemies, and the church has enemies. And there's an enemy of our soul, and there's enemies of state. There really are. Not everyone wants to just hug. Can't we just hug? Hold on to that thought. Someday we will. There are enemies. You know, they couldn't be happier if in your business, your business was out. They would have a party. Let's high-five it. Or you got fired from your job. You say, I'm a nice guy. Well, I know you are. They don't like the way you look. Maybe you look like somebody they don't like. And they say, well, that's not fair. It's not fair. You have enemies. David had enemies. David, the beloved of God, the champion, the one who killed Goliath, the servant of the Lord. How could anyone not like David? His name means beloved, the loved one, right? You had enemies. People that, that uh, stayed up late at night wanting his demise, and you have the same. Maybe she sits across you in the, in the office and just kind of glares at you, makes life tough, says lies to your boss, impugns your motive, you know, and little do you know what's going on, but you sense something's not right. Maybe it's in your family. What a terrible thing that is. But I know families can be messy. Have you noticed that? They can be messy. It's the best thing going. It's God's plan, but it can be very, very hard and cause you sleepless nights. Listen, look out. 
look out. Don't be naive. Don't have rose-colored glasses on. There are enemies out there that will harm you. Be, be aware. Be alert. David begins in verse 1 with a strong statement, this wonderful statement of his trust in the Lord. I love this. In the Lord, he says, the personal name of, the, of God, I take refuge. So I hide myself in him. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to the mountains? In other words, his well-meaning friends urged him, run, man, run. In other words, your security is found in your flight. When I was a boy, I was always like that. If I was in trouble, I, I don't know, something clicked in my head and my feet started to run. I did. I used to run and my family would chase me, trying to, <laughs> trying to catch up. I went out one time for a pass and I, I had it in my hand. I turned around and met a, a, a maple tree. Hit me right, I mean, put me right down. I jumped up and I was running around the neighborhood screaming. And there's my brother and my father trying to catch me, you know. Running. That's just something that's intuitive to me. Run. And here it is. He's saying his friends, well-meaning friends, said, listen, it's bad here. There's, it's hopeless. I mean, you don't run unless it's hopeless. Have you noticed that? Even people that shouldn't be running run when it's hopeless. And they're saying to him, get out of town, get out of Dodge. It's hopeless, David. Run for your security is found in your flight. David was in desperate trouble. Make no mistake about that. It was a solemn situation. His enemies were ready. They were real. They were ready to pounce on him. They were lying in wait. In verse 2, we discover their weapons were probably, if they weren't real bows and arrows, they were their tongues. They were slander. For the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. The shadow gives the idea here that uh, it implies an underhanded activity. And that's why it's suggested by some of the writers that uh, it was their tongues. Our tongues are like arrows. Our words are like that. That's why we need to be very careful with our words. May we speak less, listen more, and may our words always be seasoned with grace. And if they weren't real weapons of injury, like bows and arrows that David was faced with, they were the slanderous tongues that those that were near him, that were killing him or trying to without knives. You know, that's what slander does. It's killing somebody without knives. And you and I participate in that. Whenever we freely say something off the cuff about someone we should never have said. My mother was right when she when I was young, if you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. Not bad, huh? Almost sounds biblical, right? Well, they were, they were uh, harming him or threatening him, and uh, instead of flying off, verse 2, David, is, his heart attitude is to fly to the Lord for his safety. So David asks the question in verse 3. It's a timeless question. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The burning question of our day. Frank Gabeline wrote in 1939, he said, it's the burning question in my day. 
Jim Boyce commenting on that many decades later said, if, it, if that's the way Gabeline felt in 1939, it's a thousand times more today. And the foundations are being destroyed. What can the righteous do? What can they do? By foundations, we would understand they're the solid supports that support everything else in life, everything that's built. The foundation is all important. You see, when you build a house or a building, we like to look at the windows or the, the garnishing and the, the way the lines all go and the colors and the beauty of that, all that. And they're, the aesthetics, and they're beautiful. But that's not the most important thing. The most important thing of any building is the foundation. And when the foundation is not built with integrity, when it's not built well, and begins to give way, the whole superstructure is going to give way and go. And so he's saying, what do we do when the foundations of all that uh, we know in life and society and culture seem to be caving? What do we do? What shall we do when the laws are not upheld? What do we do when morality is, is undermined? What do we do when evil sweeps unchecked? When the Bible is undermined in its teaching, disregarded, when family values seem to be crumbling all around the edges, what do we do? What shall we do when everything around us seems to be giving way? That is David's question, and isn't it apropos for us today as we sense it perhaps more than we did a week or two or, or a couple of years ago? Well, the foundations refer to, number one, to the law and order of society based on God's righteous rule. You see, it was the wicked shooting at the righteous. It's a moral issue here. When wrong was being promoted and right was being denigrated. This was an example when evil triumphs over righteousness, when evil is not suppressed like it ought to be. That's one thing I appreciate about being in Qatar, is that, uh, there are a lot of strange things over there, and it's certainly a different culture. But uh, uh, human sexuality is really suppressed by the culture. Uh, in the advertisements, it's not in your face. People half-dressed, selling everything from uh, motor oil to tires to hamburgers. You know what I mean? Uh, the lewdness of our culture that we just swim in and we just sort of expect is normal. Uh, there, you, it's, you don't see it at all. And, and I found it like a breath of fresh air. I mean, there's something within all of us that uh, isn't excited by that sensuality. And uh, we don't need a lot of logs thrown on that fire to have a raging fire within, right? Uh, in that culture, in the governance of that, as strange as some of the other things are, it was a breath of fresh air. Uh, it really was. And here in our day with the election and the outcome and the, and the whole battle, almost cultural clash of morality, right and wrong, and, and the value of life seeming to cave, and sexuality blatant, you just you feel like we're swimming in a cesspool and it's increasingly getting polluted. We give more thought to our air and to our water than do we do to the morality of our culture. And the election of people that don't seem to have a problem with that. 
and we freely elect them. And to read Christians who would write about uh, voting for this person or that person and, and to know their stance, it just boggles my mind. Well, these timid friends in three see David's situation as hopeless. What could he do? Well, I'm reminded at such times, don't keep your eyes on your problem. Don't keep looking at it. Don't keep looking at them. Look up. Look up. Look up. For in verses 4 to 6, David answers. And we, like David, need to respond by looking up and seeing the sovereign God sitting on his throne. This is the this is the answer to your life, and it's the answer to mine. No matter what the issue or problem or trouble or in our country that we face. Here it is, verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. There's the answer. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. When such times happen to us, look up. Look up. Look up with freshness. And find your utter confidence in the Lord. He is on, he is in his heavenly throne. He is in his heavenly temple. He's holy. It's a moral um, standard. He is on his throne. He rules and he reigns. We as a a country have national presidential elections every four years. God doesn't have that. He's forever King of kings and Lord of lords. And he has not gone on a vacation. He has not left us. Gideon was wrong when he said, why has all this happened? Why has this happened? If God is God and still there, he's still here. He still reigns. He has a story that includes all things. And he reigns supreme. The throne is the idea, is the place from which God, the judge of the whole earth, will render judgment. And David is looking forward to the day of just and final judgment. He reigns. So stop looking at your problem. Stop looking at the dire circumstance. Stop looking at who may be filling Congress or the state houses or local or the White House or whatever. Our solution was never in that anyway. Not that we give it up. We ought, we have the privilege to be a part of governance, and we ought to be, and we ought to exercise our vote, and we ought to pray. But here's the answer. Really, it should never have been in the evangelical church from the top down. It's a both and, but the emphasis should be, if we really want change in this country, needs to be grassroots. As you and I share the gospel with people that God surrounds us with, it changes lives. All of a sudden, it changes their political agenda. Have you ever noticed that? It changes the way they think. It changes the way they vote. It changes their values when they're regenerate. But people won't come to know Christ if we don't share the treasury of the gospel. If we're afraid, oh, I'm afraid, what will they think of me? You have the treasury of the gospel. If you know Christ... We ought to be even more busy as the day gets darker that people would hear Christ the Lord through us. We ought to develop friendships with those around us in our neighborhoods, where we work, in our, where we do our trading, where we go to school, so that what? We can be salt and light. That's how a, a people are changed. If we, if we haven't learned that, at least through 
the thought, well, we need an evangelical in the White House. That'll change things. That's pathetic. The Puritans, when they, when they had Cromwell, thought, well, we finally got the protectorate. Well, that lasted a few years, and that was gone forever. And they went back to uh, Charles II. It was pathetic. You, we need to change from the grassroots up. And that's why God has allowed Grace Church to come into existence, that we might be a blessing in our greater community. This is our mission field. It's not over there. It's a both and, but we're here. This is Jerusalem. And it's my burden that each one of us un- become unleashed in winning people for Christ. That you view yourself as missionaries here. That God would so burden your heart. This is my prayer. That you wouldn't go a day a week without finding someone to befriend, to share Christ with, to love them through, that we might see this world turned upside down. That we would love them and care for their needs and draw them close and let them see Christ in us. And if they have needs, that we would open our wallets and open our hearts and embrace them and open our homes. It's the only way we're going to make a difference. Listen, the sun seems to be setting on the west. It's going to get darker. When are we going to get engaged? We like to get dressed and come and sing our little songs, and it's needful, and we love that, and we appreciate our band, and we gather here in our freedom, right? Well, the world is dying, going to hell around us. Or where would you be if nobody shared with you the gospel of Christ? You'd be lost. Listen, I'm, I'm living on borrowed time. I was thinking about that early this morning. My father died in my life. It would have been July this year. And every day I live after that, I feel like I'm on absolute borrowed time. And my days are going to be gone soon. Charlie Tremendous Jones is now in glory. He had a wonderful service Friday night, remembering his wonderful witness of the gospel of Christ, a businessman that God wonderfully used to sweep many people into glory. How about you? How about you? You can reach people I can't even get near. I'm Dr. Death. They hear I'm a pastor, and that ends the conversation with many people. I have a lot I could say and share with them, but it's like, mm, I got to go. <laughs> but you live with them, and you work with them, and some of them work for you, and you ought to be praying on a sheet of paper in your Bible, a list of names, that God would use you to plant the seed of the gospel, to love them through you. I don't care if they're miserable, if they're unlovely, or if they have warts and they smell. It doesn't matter. We're sort of that way too, aren't we? Take the garbage can off the lid of your heart, take a peek in. That's a scary thing. It is. But that's my heart and that's your heart. The day is setting. The sun is setting. What are we going to do? Are we going to get engaged? Every day I pray that these seats would be full. They represent people that need to know Christ, that need to be under the hearing of the Word. And I keep waiting. I say, Lord, when's it going to happen? I guess we're not engaging our people. We're not inviting. We're not employing. We're not picking them up. Why is that, I say? Have I failed as a pastor? Have I not communicated my burden? We need to be reaching people. And the joy of that, it'll change this church. It'll change this area. It'll change our country for such a time as this. Now, we can have a little huddle, we can hide, we can be afraid, and our numbers will dwindle as we die off, and that'll be it. Last one hit the light, and that'll be the end. What happened to those people? Well, they were here for a while, 
They're like the shakers, you know. They're here and then they're gone. That's it. I don't want that. These are our days to run. Let's go for it. You all have gifts and abilities and talents. God has given us treasury to use. Let's use it. Let's go. And let's use time, all right? I recommit myself to that. I'm here. I'm, I'm more concerned than ever in seeing the advancement of the gospel. That's really why I want to live one day after the next. And that ought to be the same with you. To say, to live, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Well, you can see David was convinced in verses 4, B through 6, of several things. While God's on the throne, God observes all that people do. He's not ignorant. Sometimes we think he doesn't know what's going on. He knows everything that's going on. He's omniscient. God examines the upright. He loves the upright. That's a hard thing to think, that God loves us. He loves you as if you were the only one in the entire universe. God knows the wicked, and he's preparing judgment for them. God is, uh, David in, in, in our verses, he's actually thinking about Sodom and Gomorrah. I really believe that. Look at that when he said in verse 6, And on the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. That's, that's Sodom. That's Genesis 19. You can write that right into your margin there. Verse 24, when God said enough is enough. Enough is enough. And judgment that was being stored up finally fell upon the five cities of the plain. I've stood there, and I've seen that. I even picked up a rock. I keep it in my office. Burnt clay. It's like a flint. It shows that God's judgment, though from our perspective, may be delayed. Where's the promise of his coming, people say? <laughs> if God's really there, when's he going to strike? I sin and he doesn't strike me. God is storing up his judgment, and one day when it comes, that will be it. And he gives us different indications of that through time, right? Sodom and Gomorrah. The flood. Only eight people, after 120 years of preaching, eight people survived. All were wiped out. And that's going to be the judgment of God in the future. And so we need to rest in the knowledge that God reigns. What do we do when the foundations seem to be being destroyed and the vote seems to go wrong? Lord, I prayed and prayed, but the vote went the wrong way. What do we do? God is on the throne. Praise God for that. Praise that. The Lord for that. We give Him thanks. I'll never forget being at the Naval Academy uh, and uh, we were, went down to see Matt's uh, tombstone, uh, Sarah's uh, uh, dear, dear uh, um, uh, she was uh, pre-engaged to him and was killed. Most of you know the story on that. We went down to see, we had heard his tombstone was, uh, was set there, and we wanted to see it. And we went down there, and Sarah was with us, and we're sitting there right in the cemetery in front of the tombstone, and and while we were there for that 40-minute period of time, I'll never forget when Brad came walking over. And uh, he saw us there, and we hadn't seen him. He was Matt's old friend from the academy. And, and he sat down, and he was just uh, talking about Matt and saying, you know, if, if I didn't know Psalm 11, 3, and 4 were in the Bible and were true, I don't know how I could go on. In his life, he had, Matt had worked on discipling him. 
And when the foundations are being destroyed, when everything you thought was firm and fixed and secure forever seems to be crumbling down, what shall the righteous do, Brad? So what shall we do? God is in his holy temple. God is on his heavenly throne. The sovereignty, the continuance that he is king of kings and lord of lords, and he sets all the boundaries, and we can find rest and shelter and refuge in that. And I do, and so should you. And the final look is, in verse 7, he concludes, not only look at your problem, look at your enemies, you have them, don't stop, look up, but finally look ahead to the end, to the outcome, the final. Verse 7, for the Lord is righteous and he loves justice, and here it is, upright men will see in the future his face. This is the day when God will reveal his face to the gathered people in glory. God's face. The ultimate beatific vision, to see the face of God. It was the desire of the Old Testament saints. If I could just see your face, Lord. Moses wanted that in Exodus 33. God, could I just see your face, the beauty of the Lord. God said, no, you can't. At that point in time, he couldn't. But he let him see his hindsight when he hid him in the cliff of the rock. We sing that, that old song, right? But in that day, we will be invited into his presence, and we shall gaze upon the face of our beloved one. Oh, what a day that will be. Oh, the glory. It's our ultimate reward and bliss. Now, think about it. At the live forever, that's great. And they have the reward of heaven for the service we do. That's great. But to be able to look upon God and gaze upon his face and the wonder of him. Oh, that's the ultimate and the final bliss of our future estate. We shall be in his presence and enjoy him forever and ever and ever. Never forget that God loves justice. Righteousness flows from him. And in the end, it will prevail in the day when all wrongs will be righted and all wrongs will be judged. This is a moral universe because it flows from God who is good. Goodness signifies morality. There is right and there is wrong and there will always be, and it's not a majority opinion. It emanates from the righteousness of God, from His goodness. Wonder of wonders, in this coming day we'll see his face. Well, that's what Moses asked for, that's what we shall see. What shall we say by way of lessons for our life? Number one, first lesson. What can, what can the righteous do when things seem to turn uh, south and the foundations crumble? Here it is. Go on being righteous. That is, do what's right, live rightly, and stand against the evil of our day. Stand up and be counted. Don't be a silent majority. Stand up. Let God be true and every man a liar. It doesn't matter if you're in the classroom or in the workplace. Stand up for that which is right and true and precious. Stand. Take a stand. Say, I don't have a backbone. Pray for one. Pray for one. I know we live in a feminized day where men are being feminized by the culture. And uh, Faithy and I were talking about that yesterday. And, and women seem to like that until they need a real man. You, you know, like I hear something downstairs, and the man says, well, I don't know, I'm afraid too, you know. 
where's my backbone? Give it back to me, I'll go down and check, you know? Yeah, be a man. Stand up for what's right and true and precious. If you don't stand up, what will you stand for? Stand up. Make your voice known gently, lovingly, caringly, not caustically, not in a judgmental way, but stand up. I believe that's true. I stand for Christ. All right, let's do that. Stand up against the evil of our day. Number two, second lesson. Our confidence in the face of despair, God is still on the throne. He's on the throne. He rules and reigns. Our God reigns. The kids think we're talking about the weather when we sing that, but he reigns. He's king. King of kings and Lord of lords. If God be for us, who can be against us? History is his story. And each day moves us closer to the story of the return of Jesus Christ. And knows what he's doing. And you know, when you read about the final days, and you read that in Daniel and Revelation, you don't read the United States. Does that mean we're going to be a second-rate power? Perhaps. The emphasis seems to be Europe. Seems to be uh, the revival of the Roman Empire, if you're premillennial in your, in your theological outlook. And so there has to be a downplaying of the United States. Our God reigns. That's our confidence. He's still on the throne. Rest in that. Sweep in that. He's sovereign. Number three, one day soon evil will finally and forever be dealt with by God. It may seem to triumph. It may seem to win for a while. As you and I are busy and, and as God gives grace and people come to saving faith and the church grows and the influence grows well beyond our number, we can have a temporary uh, effect in our con- culture and in our country and the electorate. But ultimately and finally, evil will finally be gone. I say that in my own life. I won't even know myself without a sin nature. <laughs> I look in the mirror, I'm going to look better than ever. And so will you. Won't that be great? Nothing in us that is like a magnet to want to lie, tell half-truths, to steal, to covet, to lust, the whole garbage can full of stuff that you and I walk around with. The power's defeated, but it's still there. Someday it'll be gone. It'll be gone in our culture, be gone in our country, be gone in our community. Won't read of any more deaths. Won't that be great? No more obituaries. No more murder on the highways. No more. No more rapes and all the horrible stuff that we read about that confirm that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what your newspaper says every day. Did you know that? That's what mine says. Not in those words, but that's what it says. Number four, fourth lesson for our life. Know that you will always have well-meaning friends who will urge you to find security in something other than the Lord. They will. David's friends, run to the hills. No, I'm going to trust in the Lord. And there will be those that love you and will counsel you to find security in your abilities, in your job, in your bank account, in your family, in our country, all kinds of things, right? And things that are okay in their place, but ultimately and finally, they'll all fail. It's only ever in the Lord. He is our refuge, and he ought to be yours. Number five, Pray even more for our country. You say, what can we do? What should the righteous do in the foundations 
are being destroyed. Let me urge all of us as a church, individually and corporately, to pray even more as we're commanded to for our governmental leaders. Pray for wisdom. God sets all the boundaries so that this far and no further can they go in the torrents and avenues of evil. Let's pray for that. Let's promise that we'll do that, to be greater salt and light and uh, share the gospel with others. And in that way, like salt, we'll have a preserving effect upon our country, that God would give them another movement of a spirit among our people in a very merciful, wonderful way. And number six, actually, I, had no, I actually had one more. And if you're here and you've never been saved, you've never trusted Christ the Lord as your Savior, He's your only refuge. It's not you. It's not your good works. They're lost. You're lost. You're dead in sin. There's only heaven. There's only hell. And it's only found through Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You need to receive Him as your Lord and as your Savior. My question is, have you done that? Have you, in a prayer of faith or in a statement of trust, Lord Jesus, I receive you. Be merciful unto me, a sinner. You must. Well, when everything seems to come flying apart, what do we do? We may feel like running, don't we? Like me, getting hit by a maple tree, running down the block, screaming and yelling. My folks scared the willies out of them. Didn't know what was happening to their son. We may feel like running. That's it. I quit. I'll never get engaged again. My country's going to the dogs, and there it goes. Don't do that. Let's do a holy huddle. We'll just stay together. Wouldn't it be great? We'll eat together, sleep together, stay together. We just won't ever go out. No, today's not the day for that. We may feel like that, but God has something else for us. He's trusted us to live at this time. Now let's be faithful. Let's be servants and stewards. Let's go fishing for men and women, shall we? And pray for God's great blessing.